You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, David Orozco, and this is the One Small Bite Podcast, episode number 40, What No One Tells You About Eating Disorders, and this is part two of this episode, this series with Dr. Buchanan. If you haven't yet listened to, go back to episode 39 for part one so you can hear some of the stuff that we started talking about. And this is now that continuation. Just wanted to say to listen to the end on the outro, I'm going to talk to you about some special news that I have for you coming up. I also want to give you a little warning. This is a little bit a longer interview than I've ever done before, so bear with me, but it is a great episode with some great information that you just got to tune in for. Some of us would be surprised to hear some of the interesting information that might relate to us. All right, so here we go. Let's get started. Okay, folks, we are back with Dr. Linda P. Buchanan. Um, I'm really excited because this is a two-part series on eating disorders, and um, I had Dr. Buchanan come back to talk to us about a few more very, very important topics. So, hi, Dr. Buchanan. How are you? Good, David. How are you? Doing well. Thank you very much, and thank you once again for coming on the show and doing the second part. Well, you're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Okay. So a uh, couple of things that, and I'm just, uh, so excuse the paper shuffling here, everyone, but uh, just kind of just go over quickly a couple of things that we talked about. We went over, of course, your background, and we talked about specific eating disorder areas like bulimia, uh, binge eating disorder, ARFID, which is avoidance restrictive food intolerance disorder, orthorexia, and then we talked a little bit about the new classifications of eating disorders as well. And then uh, treatment approaches, uh, independent treatment, team approach, facility. So what I'd like to do is start going over a couple of new areas, um, important areas that we really didn't get a chance to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and just start out with Dr. Buchanan. What would you say are new trends in working with people with eating disorders? Um, so I think that in the past, there has been um, a belief that you couldn't treat an eating disorder when you were, when a person had um, certain other dual diagnoses. And that's shifting, um, especially in the areas of trauma and addiction. Um, that people really need approaches that can encompass both at the same time, even though that can be very challenging. Um, But that's one thing. Uh, Treatment programs are developing trauma tracks or substance abuse disorder tracks within their eating disorder programs. And I think that that's helping a lot of people. 
So it's not just dual diagnosis. I mean, we're, we're talking about maybe even multi-diagnoses. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And what are, what are some of the, the, the typical, I think you hinted or talked briefly about them, but what would you say are, are maybe the top three or top one diagnoses that you see on a regular basis with people with eating disorders? Hmm. Well, I would say that a loaded question. (laughs) Well, it's hard to narrow it down. Yeah. (laughs) I would say that um, definitely you see anxiety and um, depression with almost anybody who has an eating disorder because it's all linked. Um, The eating disorder is more of a symptom of anxiety and depression, sometimes trauma, sometimes substance abuse, sometimes personality disorders. Uh, abuse and that that's not we're not just talking about like sexual abuse or rape or trauma but i was i was saying trauma or substance abuse oh substance abuse okay i'm sorry all right so we're talking about alcohol or drugs uh, of course yeah okay but what about then um other forms of abuse like abuse on to the individual i would imagine is that that's pretty common as well too right yes it is there's a high percentage of people who develop eating disorders who have had some kind of trauma in their background. Um, That was probably the stress that triggered the development of the eating disorder as a means of coping. Oh, that's really interesting. And how, how is it that you're, you're going from the traumatic events and then um, using an eating disorder as a coping mechanism? What's the process there? Um, Well, in very general terms, when someone has been, um, a victim of trauma, obviously there's a lack of control that mm. is part of the experience. And there is a um, relief in being able to turn your mind from what happened that was traumatic to something that you feel like you can control. And so the, the, the pull is very understandable. The problem is that it, just, it um, develops almost a secondary trauma because to not care for yourself well is also traumatic. Um, so that's, that needs to all be treated together. Um, so I recently had the opportunity to interview, um, Elise Resch, uh, from intuitive eating. Are you familiar with her? Mm-hmm. And, uh, she, I, I, I told her that I, oftentimes what I see with clients are, so what I call micro and macro T's, micro traumatic events and macro traumatic events. And, mm-hmm. I talked to her about bullying and people being made fun of, and she actually mentioned how that could be macro-traumatic, not necessarily micro-traumatic. Would that be, I, I just wanted to see what your thoughts on that would, would be. Is that something that we're talking about with trauma uh, as well, or we're talking about really intense forms of trauma? Um, it, it all depends on the person's reaction. So I think that some people are just genetically more sensitive and reactive to the things that happen to them. And I don't think that there's a lot of research that supports that. It's not my own idea. Um, And so the more sensitive you are to the things that happen to you, the more you will develop um, maybe um, identity or, or, um, inaccurate beliefs about yourself related to the events, the trauma, and then, um, and thus the increased need for some way of coping. So yes, I think um, 
what could be a, a, a small trauma for one person could be an identity changing trauma for another person and vice versa. Um, some people are very, very resilient to things like bullying. Um, and I think part of that is actually genetic. I guess that's where that whole genotype versus phenotype comes in or nurture versus nature, huh? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I can talk a little bit about that too, as far as um, other trends. Yeah, please. I mean, go ahead. <laughs> don't, okay. don't let me so stop you. <laughs> briefly, the other trends, and then you, you asked me if you want to get back to these, but other trends that I see are um, related to orthorexia, the um, health at every size movement, and, um, and then dealing with uh, the ambivalence and um, using narrative therapy to help people sort of translate what happened to them and the way they react to experiences in a more positive way. Um, and then genetics. So you want me to jump into the genetics piece? Let's start there and then we'll work through maybe the others, right? Orthorexia, uh, haze, which is how they at every size as well. So absolutely. Okay. So um, there's been an awful lot of research on um, the genetics of eating disorders. And there's been two uh, sort of primary um, areas that I find very fascinating. And one is in the area of serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain and gut. In fact, um, 90, 90% of it is in the gut um, or is developed in the gut. You said 90% or 99? 90. 90%. Okay. Yes. Wow. I didn't know it was that high, but I can definitely see I had um, Kate Scarlatta. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Very famous for gut health, uh, registered dietitian on the show a uh, few episodes back. And we talked a little bit about that um, gut brain connection and yeah. how um, in helping people with their digestive issues. One of the things is what's called a 5R protocol, Re uh, reduce, reintroduce, re-inoculate, uh, repeat, and relax. And the relax is the terminology for uh, stresses and that neurological connection as well. And she said that that's practically more than half of the percentage but wow, 90%, that's pretty intense. I mean, I can see that because you have the vagus nerves, the vagus nerve that splinters all off through the digestive system and it's just touched okay. by every cell around there, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and as an aside, that's why um, some people have a hard time taking certain medications. Oh, that's a really good point. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. And, hmm? Can you, yeah, go ahead. Let me know. What do you mean by that? Uh, they have a hard time taking the medications. Right, because they're, and they're intended to affect the brain, but since so many of the um, transmitters are actually in the gut, then, I mean, you literally can get upset stomach or feel hungry or all the different um, side effects that are in the gut that make some people um, have a really hard time tolerating the medications, but yeah, in my world, that's something that I see quite a bit is a lot of clients or people that I work with that have an eating disorder and then um, get treatment, improve quite a bit, and then have digestive issues or they'll have it during their, their eating disorder. And then there's also, they might have a digestive issue, which in itself, you know, people are going to want to reduce, which eliminate food, which mm -hmm. creates this, um, you know, ooh, fear on what should I eat? What shouldn't I eat? 
So I'm, I'm so glad that you bring that up, especially about medication too, because it's really, really difficult when you're trying to work with someone and their gut's not healthy. So that's, that's a really good point. Um, so you said there are two primary areas. One is the serotonin, that gut brain connection. What's the other one? Right. The serotonin and the serotonin, I may have talked a little bit about in our first talk. Um, it enables a person to feel relaxed, to mm -hmm. know that um, things are okay when they are okay, to be able to sleep. And if you don't produce enough serotonin or have enough serotonin available in your bloodstream, then all those things are more difficult. And you tend to be a little more reactive or a lot more reactive to what happens around you because it's you're running a little bit higher um, in, in the realm of anxiety. And then the other area is dopamine. And so dopamine is, is what um, is oftentimes referred to as the reward um, transmitter. So people who have sufficient dopamine are able to feel rewarded by certain aspects in life and pleasure by certain aspects in life. And if they don't have enough, then they really don't connect um, as well. And so it seems that people who develop eating disorders um, oftentimes are not producing enough serotonin. So they're a little more anxious and anxiety prone and harm avoidant prone. So let's just say more sensitive. And then they may, and then there's like two other um, options. They might have too much dopamine or, or above average dopamine, which means that they are highly responsive to reward, which lends them to, um, uh, to finding greater pleasure in food than the average person. And so if they're needing to feel in control or, or needing to comfort themselves, they're more likely to use emotional eating because they feel the reward of that and it works. And they're needing comfort because of the lower serotonin. On the other hand, if they have the lower serotonin and they produce also less dopamine, they're less able to feel reward. So they don't feel the comfort and reward in food that most of us do. So would that be then maybe the difference between a person that has anorexia, maybe a person that has either bulimia, binge eating disorder? That is one of the differences that, um, that research is finding. So they truly aren't as motivated. And, you know, early, early in my career, we didn't have all these um, brain scanning capabilities and understanding the brain and mapping the brain that we have now. And we thought, they were being stubborn, you know, oh, everybody likes to eat. It's not that you don't care about eating. Um, I hope I never actually said that to anybody, but that was kind of in the back end of our mind. And it turns out that research is showing that if you don't produce enough do dopamine to feel the reward, then you really aren't as interested. And this is then the importance and the reason why medication can be very valuable because right. of why then. That's right. So there, that medication can help reconnect that link from the executive brain to either the limbic or, because it's, see, it's the limbic brain that's the emotion reward kind of concept, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Mike, uh, Daniel Siegel in the book, Mindsight, wrote about sort of this um, vertical severance or vertical cut between the executive brain and that limbic brain where the communication is caught. And yes. that medication and then helps relink that. Is that right? Is that what you're talking about? That's right. And, um, and he talks about how if you get to a certain level of arousal, you literally flip your lid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the disconnection between those two parts. Right. <laughs> because if you are being chased by a bear, you certainly don't need to be 
pondering your situation. You don't need no. your pre prefrontal lobes. Right. You're just, just on overdrive. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and so people with less serotonin are more susceptible to flipping their lids with less stimulus, with less provocation. Oh, this is so fascinating. I, I, I want to ask you about something else then. Well, what then would be the treatment approach for the, these kinds of scenarios or situations? We talked about a medication, but what about from a therapeutic standpoint? Well, for people with serotonin, anything that um, uh, is related to mindfulness, because you have to use your prefrontal lobes to be mindful. So anything, anytime you're using that part of your brain, you are actually manufacturing serotonin. So um, relaxation, mindfulness, um, self-talk that is supportive and compassionate are the things that you would want to teach someone. Um, oh, wow. What, I, what comes to mind is Kristen Neff and, self, and her book, Self-Compassion. She's got a lot of exercises on there about meditation and self-kindness and relaxation. Um, but so does, oh gosh, so many people. <laughs> yes. So many really good um, uh, research on and treatment or approaches with meditation, mindfulness, self-talk. Um, what about yoga? And yoga, absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is interesting because I remember that there was Alonsa is a treatment facility, I believe. Am I saying them, their name right? Um, well, there's Alonsa and there's Alana. So yeah, I guess you're referring to Alonsa. Alonsa, yeah. Well, they had, uh, uh, did, they had done a presentation at our national conference last year, an hour, I mean, the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo, which is part of the American, I mean, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how it is actually important, even if people have anorexia, um, to provide some kind of fitness because the treatment approach, the relaxation and the release of dopamine or serotonin could be very beneficial in that regard. Yes. So I guess that's what's happening then, huh? Well, that's a new trend but, uh, that I'm glad you brought up. I didn't think of um, is actually introducing exercise, even for people who do have anorexia, um, which has traditionally been considered a really bad idea, but if it's done mindfully, um, it can do exactly what you were saying. Yes. Yeah, because uh, so if it's done mindfully, I think what you're talking about there is that part of what a person with anorexia um, or symptom or uh, what's the word that I'm looking for, a, a behavior is mm -hmm. overexercising, correct? Right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. go, go ahead. Uh, yes. Oftentimes that's one of the symptoms. Okay, cool. Um, okay. A couple of other points to this then. Um, explain to me what narrative therapy would be then. So um, as I was explaining, um, sort of to, to develop an eating disorder is a combination of genetics and experience. And if you are already very sensitive genetically, and then you have stress, and of course, um, everybody has stress, but it's going to be an interplay with your level of sensitivity. Um, then you're going to develop, as everyone does, a narrative to help guide you in life. And so the more stress and the more sensitive you are, then the more likely the narrative is filled with falsehood. Like um, if I say, mom and dad divorced because I wasn't lovable. Mm. 
someone who's quite sensitive and goes through a, a stress like their parents, uh, their family being, you know, uh, under that stress and then that ch- transition um, is, is very likely, and also depending on the age at the time, but very likely to develop inaccurate beliefs that they would, as an adult, never assume for anybody else. But even though they know that, it doesn't go away because it's kind of wired into their identity from younger time. And they've been operating that way as if they're not lovable, maybe for years or decades. And so the narrative therapy is an approach to help them understand the narrative that they wrote or um, uh, created as they were growing up and then re-examine it and um, rewrite it from their adult perspective, like, well, no child actually has the power to make their children. I mean, their parents divorce regardless of how lovable they are. And then try to live according to the new narrative and rewire their brain according to the new narrative. And I, in fact, have a workbook uh, with over 30 handouts to help a person walk through that process that I just described. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm assuming that workbook's on your website. Um, wow. that I love that because that's that neuroplasticity that we're talking about here. Right. Um, is that right? Right. Yeah. And ne- just... Just for clarity, neuroplasticity, I think you said it best. You talked about understanding the narrative, so understanding the wiring, uh, then to re-examine it and go, okay, wait, how do I change this or what's going on with this? Why did this happen? Sort of that kind of deeper understanding and examining it and looking, okay, what would be the changes that we can make? And then let's start rewiring. So you're not getting rid of the old narrative by, by saying, I'm never going to think this again you're saying, okay, what's a better way of rephrasing this or restating this? So there's a new, there's this new narrative. And then we then live by that. And that's where the practice comes in, I would imagine. That's exactly right. I love this because this is exactly what I do with a lot of my clients in the office. This is also very, very similar to the, I call it a lot of different names, the problem, problem solving method, the clinical method, the scientific method, the research method, where you identify a problem, you collect and analyze the information, you then come up with a solution, you then act on it, and then you evaluate and monitor it, see what's happening. And then it's a cyclical condition where you practice and you, you know, each time you do it more and more and more, you get better and better and better at it. So this is this is fantastic, Dr. Buchanan. I love this. This is fantastic. Um, okay, so I want to go back, though, to something that you mentioned because it, it really struck or piqued my interest here a little bit. You talked about um, this reward uh, mechanism, and it made me think of, I forget the process when it comes to habits, kind of like I think of, what's it, the craving um, the desire or something. And then there's two other pieces and then there's the reward. So forgive me if I can't remember the, the four components here, you might not know it best, but I think I understand and remember that sort of Pavlovian law here where you're actually getting a dump of dopamine at the thought or the idea of having mm-hmm. the condition, the behavior greater than, than when you get the reward is, is, have you heard that? Or do you know if that's the case? Um, I, I can't say I'm familiar with research about that, but it does make sense that that, that can happen. That, um, in fact, I was going to say you were asking about the treatment for serotonin. I mean, 
the treatment when people have these combinations of a genetic predisposition. And for dopamine, it is to help them consider, because if they produce more than average dopamine and therefore um, really benefit from anything, you know, they really feel the reward, such as with food, right. um, is to help them pause after that initial thought that produces that dopamine and that desire um, and think, what do I really want? And it might not be quite as um, exciting at first because there's been the habit formed and there's that um, expectation of how it's been helpful in the past, but it's always so short-lived. Now, food is very comforting and you can feel in control of it, but if there are other things that need attention that usually get um, so, you know, pushed aside because I can feel better for a minute with food, then those other things are not really ever getting taken care of. And there's not a generalization into what other things can, um, can I um, get reward or pleasure from. That's fascinating. I, I keep thinking in my mind uh, in the eating disorder world, how, how I, we can relate that in sort of a little bit layman's term, maybe by saying it's like, you know, people that pack the cigarette box, I often tell them, do you know, do you know why people do that? And most people, well, yeah, I'm not sure, unless you ask someone who smoked cigarettes for a long time and they'll say, oh yeah, that's to get the tobacco pack so you can light the cigarette faster. Um, but what's actually happening is the packing is a trigger mechanism. It's uh, re- re- giving you that sense of, hey, you're about to get the reward. It's kind of that uh, Pavlov's bell, right? Um, and so it's interesting what we, we talk about eating disorder. I kind of, I often see a lot of people that have these triggers that are happening during the day and it's almost as if it's telling them, Hey, you're about to control something and you get this sense of it. Mm-hmm. And then I, like you said, it's very short lived. You get this sense of overpowering, um, or dopamine dump because you're like, Oh, you know, you're, you're about to control this, but it's, it lasts very, very little and so you're always wanting to do it over and over again right yeah and especially since it's followed oftentimes by guilt oh that's that's good Mm -hmm. and then there's a increased need to feel some comfort oh yeah right oh that's that's so good okay so let's then talk about because this is this is just it happens in our world quite often and that is dealing with ambivalence. And um, let's, I mean, maybe there's two, uh, there's the, the therapists or counselor, and then there's the individual that's receiving the treatment, right? And are we talking about dealing with ambivalence in both regards, or we're we talking about just the client or patient? Well, um, I primarily speak about the ambivalence within the client, although I, um, I lead a lot of supervision groups and we work on our own ambivalence as well. Mm. Um, as the therapist, but what I'm referring to as far as a trend in eating disorders is, and this isn't a new trend, um, but dealing directly with ambivalence instead of considering it as resistance. The ambivalence has always been there. If you think about a person with an eating disorder, the very thing that they feel like they need to do to live is potentially fatal. And that's, that, you know, that's pretty extreme to have, to have something um, that need, that is, what am I trying to say? That much in conflict. So clearly they're ambivalent. One part wants to function well and live and the other part, um, the way to do that it could kill them. So 
what happens in therapy is oftentimes if you're trying to help someone and you're trying to give them suggestions on ways to change, they sort of um, then hear the part in their mind that is afraid of change. And so they take on the unhealthy voice, quote, the unhealthy voice, and we tend to take the healthy voice. And if we do that, they're left with the unhealthy voice and we're in a power struggle. And then if they don't do what we think they should, then oftentimes we label them as resistant. And so um, a long time ago, I started conceptualizing this as ambivalence instead of resistance. And I've been trying to teach therapists to not take the healthy voice, but to help the person recognize their own ambivalence and help them find their way out of the dilemma because they are just ping-ponging back and forth oftentimes. What is the way out when you're helping someone with that narrative, with that voice? Well, in a very general sense, it's recognizing that there is wisdom on both sides. And that's what oftentimes doesn't happen in treatment because it sounds like the wisdom is all about recovery. But actually, if you have a person who say, um, uh, no, let's, let's do this one. Let's say you have a person who's, who's not eating because she's perfectionist and she's not eating enough because she thinks the only way to be loved is to be perfect. Then you can't just say that's not true and expect them to change. Um, you need to kind of explore, well, well, where did you learn that? And is there any part of you that wishes that you didn't have to be perfect? And how can we sort of honor both parts, the part that is afraid that you're not lovable and the part that wishes um, that you didn't have to be perfect. So kind of helping them find their way through both parts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I I love that. You talk about that. I, I have a friend who is a licensed clinical social worker and he makes the analogy of that when you have this ambivalence or when you have this resistance or fear, it's like walking through a tunnel and the tunnel is dark. That's the fear. That's the ambivalence or the, 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 the resistance, but there is a light. The, the tunnel is a tunnel. It, it's not closed. It's not a cave. And so you, you keep walking. So you walk through it. So you're, you're, you're talking about having a professional work with them by walking through or heading towards the fear. Is that right? Yeah, instead of just standing on the other side and yelling, come on, you need to be over here. I think it is more of a journey in understanding the ambivalence or the reasons why a lot of times we talk about it, um, like understanding the function of the symptoms. But again, this this goes back to having someone, a professional working with them, because this is not easy to do on your own. No. Yeah. (laughs) Not even easy to be aware of. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, anything else with ambivalence that you want to bring up? Well, um, I do have one other thing. Okay, one good. Thing. <laughs> That's, out. Um, people who are ambivalent also sometimes um, confuse the people around them. And so I, I love to have conversations with family members or partners about um, when they say things like, well, one minute she says this and the next minute she says this, or this doesn't even seem like my daughter. She's not acting like my daughter. And I try to give them the understanding of ambivalence because yes, on one hand, your daughter wants to be um, the good little pleasing girl she's always been. And on the other hand, there's a part of her that really needs um, to express something or some anger or fear or shame. And so if you understand it in light of ambivalence, you can have both. 
Um, okay, so uh, l- let's continue forward then, talk a little bit about then what we mentioned a little while ago, these trends. And so one of the trends also is orthorexia. We talked a little bit, we hinted at a little bit of it and in our f- first part, but I'd like to elaborate a little bit more with you on or- orthorexia. What, uh, let's, let's just for um, clarification, let's talk about what orthorexia is again, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, well, orthorexia is a term that's been around since 1997. There was a um, physician who was also a personal coach named Stephen Brot- Brotman, who um, started noticing this tendency among some of the people that he worked with to try to get more and more pure in the way they were eating. Um, and it started out for most people just kind of innocently wanting to eat a little more healthy. But for certain people, it became such an obsession that he ended up coining this term orthorexia, which in the Greek means um, correct eating. Mm, Okay. And he has, and a couple of research groups, um, he's in a research group and there are others forming over the past um, 20, 30 years, 20 years, I guess, who have um, been looking at this and it's different from anorexia, but it presents similarly. And they have tried to get it into the DSM and it hasn't yet been um, accepted in the DSM, but there is criteria and therapists are using the criteria to, um, to at least know what they're working with when it seems like anorexia, but it's not. So the main difference is that a person who's suffering with orthorexia is not attempting to control their weight. They're attempting to control every bite they take from a, from a pure perspective. So there's been lots of different diets that have kind of, um, pardon the pun, fed into this mindset. Um, And you can think of all the different sort of fad diets that are going around today. And, um, And these people do oftentimes lose a lot of weight, but again, it's for a different motivation. And so the different, the main difference is the motivation for the restrictive eating. Um, But it can be just as, Um, medically compromising as anorexia. People can become just as socially isolated because of their fears of eating. And I think it can, it is even more neglected right now in the medical field because it's so commonplace for people to talk about their new diet and to be losing weight and that be seen as a positive and that somebody can be very ill before it, it, they, they're recommended to get help. What kind of illnesses have you seen with orthorexia? The same medical complications that you would have with anorexia, which are the medical complications that you have from under eating. So um, you lose muscle, you um, have a decrease in heart um, tissue and brain tissue, orthorexia. So you start losing bone matter. I mean, you just lose. Um, You're not just losing fat when you get underweight. You lose from your entire body. Oh, it's so great that you bring that up because from a nutrition standpoint, I often talk about this oil rig analogy, if you don't mind me just quickly explaining a little bit of that, because you talk about this deterioration of lean tissue, bone, heart, brain. And I tell people, you know, the body is, if you're starving yourself, the body is going to go to what's easiest to get first. Um, I often tell people that fat is a very laborious process. It requires many, many more enzymes to break down than it does 
for glycogen, which is in the muscle or lean tissue like protein or muscle fiber or uh, lean tissue fiber. And uh, the body's going to go there first um, yeah. in some cases, even at a higher rate than fat. I think that uh, I remember when I was in grad school, um, one of my graduate research professors mentioned something related to what is it called? Um, oh, um, athlete triad. Is that mm -hmm. uh, anorexia athlete triad? What, what is that one again? Oh, I think that's the, um, it's the three factors of under eating, over exercising, and it must be weight loss. I'm not sure what yeah. the third. Yeah. But anyway, the, the whole point is, is that the, he did some research at some uh, Olympians. I think it was the, the, the rhythmic, rhythmic gym, gymnast that had very high levels of fat but didn't have didn't have the body that looked like they were overweight or obese but there was a very high incidence of under eating over exercising and they were deteriorating a lot of lean tissue but they they actually maintained a lot of fat which was right. very fascinating to me and i think this well, I is i think that's the body trying to save the person's life Right, right, exactly. I mean, it, it just makes sense. And so I tell people we can't outsmart our bodies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. No if matter what we do. Weight, I tell people if you actually do want to lose weight, and, and that needs to be based on something other than just appearance. Um, but And anyway, if you actually did want to, the only way to do it is to do it so slowly that your body doesn't catch on. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. That, I, I'm so glad. Again, that's one of the reasons why I call this uh, podcast One Small Bite. I mean, I'm not a big believer at all in having people lose weight, but you're right. If you're, if you're heading down that path, you'll know that the body is going to do it for you, not you're going to do it for the body. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Because the body catches on that there's, a, there's um, not enough food around, like just about any diet that you um, would find in right. advertised then it'll work against you. And it's got so many mechanisms to work against you. Yeah, I, I tell people for every one thing you do to lose weight or try to lose weight, the body has 20 overrides. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> I mean, the body's just so smart. It's like you can't outthink your body, you know, and your, your brain is part of your body. I mean, it may be the, you know, the processing center, but it, it's still part of your body. So um, I love it. I think it's so amazing what you talk about. It. Yeah, and so orthorexia is something that... Um, I tend to see a little bit more in men than I do see in um, women. I, I think we talked a little bit about that last time. I don't think that there's an actual percentage that I'm familiar with, but I do kind of tend to see it a little bit more with men. Is it, is it, I mean, I may be right or maybe wrong, but it doesn't matter. I guess the point I'm getting to is, would this be like a gateway drug? Would this be like a gateway in, entry into an eating disorder? Or this actually is pretty much an eating disorder at this point. Um, I believe it is an eating disorder, but I also think that, yes, it could um, lead into other eating disorders. Right. And then this goes back to what we talked about in the first, uh, uh, yeah, the first part episode where people can go in and out of different eating disorders. It, they're, they, they don't always get labeled and stuck as, okay, you have anorexia being done, right? Right. Yeah. Right, because like say say you start with orthorexia, um, but one of the 
adjustments that your body is going to make if you're not eating enough is it's going to try to get you to binge eat. Right. That's one of those things that you were talking about, the adjustments that your body will make. So so then that could it could go into emotional or binge eating from orthorexia. Yeah. And I see that with people with orthorexia. I mean I see it in other conditions as well. You can have people that have anorexia that end up binge eating as well. Right. Right. And then they feel like the problem is the binge eating. Right. That's That's not true. The problem is under eating. Right. Right. Cause the natural reaction of binge eating. Right. It's not the chicken before the egg here. It's you're not eating enough. And so you're going to have this desire. The body's just going to kick in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. um, Switch gears on you again, um, just to move forward. Let's talk about, and I I, I love this topic. I love this organization, uh, Healthy at Every Size. Um, So Healthy at Every Size is actually an organization but let's talk about the premise behind it. Um, what does that mean? And why is this important when we're talking about eating disorders? Well, um, the health at every size group believes that people should be able to have a positive body image, regardless of what size they are, which is completely different from our culture perspective. Um, Now, I don't think that they're saying that everybody at every size is healthy, but they are saying that it is possible to be healthy at every size. Some people are meant to be in large bodies. And if you put that person, if that person tried to control their body to become smaller, then they'd be more likely to be less healthy. Um, And so they, they, they're trying to educate doctors to not look at weight as the primary factor, that the other factors are much more important, like um, uh, blood pressure and cholesterol level and um, uh, endurance and things like that are much better uh, indicators of health than weight. And most of us traditionally have thought weight was the best indicator. You know, if you're overweight, you probably will have health problems. And that's not true. So they're that's not always true. So their yeah. goals are to um, kind of challenge that, challenge how society sees our bodies and promote more acceptance of different sizes of bodies and help people feel better in their own skin. Yeah, I have so much to unravel with you on this. First, let me talk a little bit about my experience, especially with physicians. I love working with physicians. I get a lot of referrals from physicians that I work with. But boy, do I cringe when a client is quote unquote doing well. And why I put that in quotations is, again, it goes back to what you were saying. Their blood pressure is better. They feel better. They sleep better. They have better mood. They are not as irritable. They have more energy. They're wanting to eat healthier foods. uh, And they're enjoying uh, other foods that they're eating and then they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you got to lose some more weight. Yeah. Oh, it's like, oh, please. Oh, I, I had, I've had several clients, especially uh, fertility clients, clients that have gone to the fertility specialist and they've said, well, you know, you've got to lose some weight. And, and I, I argue sometimes with f- f- fertility physicians and tell them, you know, there's no research in, you know, in the body of research that shows that a woman or man cannot get pregnant because they are obese, their chances are a little bit, little bit harder. I mean, we're talking about five to 7%, not Mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. 
but boy, it just really sets a, a client yeah. off with that. Um, and then there's that stigmatization that then continues on. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah That's very, why, very sad. Yeah, it is. It really is sad. Um, I, 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 how do we come uh, to uh, get at this stigmatization of weight in our society? It's, it's really, really a, a challenging uh, issue because, you know, it is part of the eating disorder that we see as well. Um, what do you think are some of the best ways to get at that weight, weight stigma? Well, um, I mean, it's many pronged. I think we have to work person by person and helping them feel comfortable in their own body so that the stigma doesn't have as much power, you know, to, um, spread, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, continuing to do research and there's been a lot of research, um, being done that doesn't seem yet to have um, reached a tipping point in changing people's minds, but that diets don't work, that people can be healthy at all sizes, um, that weight cycling, as a matter of fact, causes a whole lot more medical conditions than someone who just um, is in a larger body consistently. And the weight cycling is devastating on health. Um, And then there's, um, I don't know, I've got colleagues who say, well, we've got to get out there and we've really got to educate people. We've got to educate physicians and other ones who are um, saying, I'm just doing it one by one with the people I meet because the mountain is too big. Yeah, this is the reason why I have this podcast, because it's just very difficult for me to be able to reach more clients. Every single week, I'm getting clients that want to lose weight. They they think that I'm the expert in the meal plan that's going to finally get them to reach their goals, and it's going to be personalized and individualized. And I'm often telling them, well, look, I'm not the expert of you, you are, and your body knows best, and yeah. we've got to work with your body not against it. And I, I often see a lot of clients leave because they, 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 they want that diet. Um, it goes back to this sort of um, ambivalence, I think, a little bit, is, if I'm not mistaken. And, and there's no judgment on my part. Some people are, are sad that they can't identify with a diet. It's like, what do I do then if I don't have this diet? What, who am I if I'm not thin? Right. The health at every size, people would say, um, you have a right to be in the body you're in. And they might encourage movement, but not weight loss um, as the goal. Weight loss can occur, but if that's the goal, you're set up for um, failure probably in most instances, especially if you do it the way, um, the ways that are out there and recommended. What, right. And and, and I, I think there's a lot of this pseudo co-oping type dieting that's going on as well where we're calling it different names now, clean eating, mm-hmm. plant-based eating, which is now the old-fashioned vegetarianism or veganism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a stigma that comes along with it because if you're not doing that, then you're not part of a group, right? I mean, if you're going you're gonna to look a certain way where a group of people that you want to belong to look and they're doing it, if you're not doing it, then you're not part of that group. I guess that goes to the whole Brene Brown and belonging, connection, vulnerability, yeah. right? And I understand it in our culture. Um, 
I understand the longing dilemma because some people are not meant to be in smaller bodies. Um, one thing that we're, we're trying to work with physicians on is really studying growth charts and mm -hmm. noticing um, sort of before the person started dieting or um, having eating problems, what did the growth chart look like? And some people just are not in the 50th percentile. In fact, most people, <laughs> most people don't hit 50th. We're all over right. um, above and below. And so kind of trying to get back in touch with what, who are you who, is a good question you mentioned earlier. And what is your natural body? Cause okay. you probably can't really fight that. No, that's, so that's acceptance. A yeah, that's acceptance. Uh, that's a really good point. So then that leads into something else that, that goes into a little bit of the research on set points, right. And metabolism. Mm -hmm. Is that right? I mean, talk a little bit about set points. Cause that, that set points is something that is talked a lot about, um, and uh, that gets to that body size thing and what is our set point, our me metabolic set point. Um, you and I think you were hinting a little bit at that with the growth chart. You know, you got to look at people's patterns and where, where they are. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because oh, that's, a, that's another big one, right? Yeah. So you said a little bit a little while ago, not everybody belongs in a, in, a, in a small body. Let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Well, right, because of genetics. I mean, we all have, we're, we're different um, heights. We have different size noses, different color hair, skin, eyes. Um, what makes us think that we don't have different body sizes? Right. Um, and there is a, a bell curve, you know, a range, just like every other characteristic where um, there's an average. And then, and then there's a lot of people who don't fall according to the average, and by the way, our societal um, uh, ideal is not on the average point. It's kind of way over on the smaller side of the bell curve. Yeah, right, <laughs> of course. So that puts maybe 70% of us out already right. or eight, um, in the wrong body. But um, so, so you're born, I think, um, with a set point, like meaning basically it's related to uh, metabolism and how quickly you um, burn calories or convert the energy into fat. And that is genetically determined. And, um, and then if you try to mess with that, it really will backfire. It's what you were saying about the brain. Um, because there will be adaptions. Like if you try to lower your set point, you're really telling your brain that you are not, there's not enough food. And so the body will slow your metabolism, which would actually increase your set point where your body wants to just land, which is why people you'll, you just, you just almost never see anybody go on a diet, get to the weight they want and then stay there. It almost never happens. The body pulls you back. Right. Uh, what did, I think again, uh, Elise and Evelyn in the presentation mentioned that the greatest predictor of weight gain is weight loss. Exactly. That's that springboard right. you're talking about. That's one of the greatest predictors of developing an eating disorder as well. Yes. Yeah. That's why I was just about to bring that up. It's, it's like, yep, this is exactly the same thing. So when you said it, I was like, oh, I forgot to mention that the last time we talked about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's, you can't outthink your body. Your body is going to spring back. Does the set point change? Are you familiar with that? 
Um, now, I'm not real familiar with the medical research or the phys- physiological research behind set point. I know it's um, it's um, related to hormones, hormones, and um, I, I think there's only a wisd- a window where yeah. that can shift. I think it's very little. The set point is more of a genetic like height, mm. but um, you know, there is a little bit of a window, but it's when you, when you move outside of the window that your body is comfortable with, that you're going to develop problems really on either direction. And it's so, it's so discouraging. I imagine people will listen to this and feel so discouraged because we have bought the mindset that there's a right way to be. There was actually a study done of 170,000 adults and they asked them what their actual weight was and what they thought their weight should be. And they found that the people, the the more gap between those numbers, so the more dissatisfied people were with their body, the more health problems they had. And it didn't have anything to do with weight. Yeah, that's it. Again, that goes back to the mind. And that is, you know, your, your mind's going to set off a slew of different chemicals that will create an imbalance because you're not feeling that you're belonging in that body. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it here. No, that's right. It's, you know, cortisol, especially if you feel distressed about your body, you're going to produce cortisol. And then that actually is, um, that causes people to gain weight. Right. And that's that uh, HPA, um, hypothalamus, uh, pituitary, uh, adrenal access concept here where right. something's going on and boom, you're getting this cortisol and epinephrine, norepinephrine release. And, and so now you're dumping hard. glucose into your blood, but you're not breaking down fat and your body's going, oh, I'm losing all that glucose. I better get something to eat. And so then you might overeat or don't even overeat. Now your metabolism has slowed down because, oh, okay, I can't keep using up any of my energy. And now when you do eat, the body's like, oh, well, this is my set point. So I'm just going to store it as fat. Again, I love the body. The body's super smart. Let's not (laughs) outthink the body. All right. I want to back up to something and then we'll we'll finish up with one more question at the end here. But I want to back up to something because, you know, I can also hear how, especially when we talk about dopamine and the fight, flight, freeze concept, the HPA uh, access. What about people who are thinking, well, I need my anxiety, my anxiety, my, you know, my go-getter attitude. I'm, you know, I'm a type A and I'm just going to be fantastic what I do. I mean, how, how is it that um, I'm going to, you're telling me to slow that down or get rid of that. I mean, how can I be great at my career, at my job or, or, you know, my performance and my athleticism, if I don't have that, that drive, mm-hmm. what do we say to that? Yeah. Well, yes, I've heard that a lot of times too. And um, <laughs> yes, what <so> have I? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to take that away from anybody. Right. That is a part of who you are. And we're trying to accept who we are. So absolutely, when I talk to people about this and they have a question like that, I'll say, I couldn't take that away from you if I wanted to. Um, that will always be a part of who you are. But let's make sure that you haven't added shame or guilt layers on top of that. Like if you're not, if you do take 30 minutes off, do you feel shame or guilt? Can you be kind to yourself and still accomplish a lot? What is the narrative you're telling yourself about accomplishment? Is that the only place you get pleasure? And I'll tell you, you are not going to become a slacker, but I do think that you can have more peace. Oh, that's, oh, that's great. Oh, I often tell people, 
Um, what is the solution to war? <laughs> they scratch their heads sometimes and they think, oh, uh, negotiations. I'm like, no, peace. It's so hard to get to peace. But when you get there, it's like, yeah, you can yeah. accept that you are a go-getter, but you're right. It's, it's that shame and guilt and what side is going to relent, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the analogies here are going a little too far. Um, oh, this is great. I mean, I can continue talking to you about this forever, Dr. Buchanan. This is great. I want to ask you, why is it rewarding to work with people with an eating disorders? Uh, because of their genetic makeup, these folks tend to be so sensitive. They tend to be so generous toward other people because, because they're sensitive and they have mm. hearts. They, um, they tend to be very loving and um, bright and hardworking, as we just discussed, um, and wounded. And when you when you work with someone that has that much going on positively and you help them, you know, heal misconceptions, wounds, old narratives, and you see them become um, what they can be. It's just, there's not much better than that. That is beautiful. It makes me think of, and I'm sorry if this is a crude uh, connection, but it makes me think of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Um, Aww. He once was quoted saying when he was a young boy and there were some really bad um, protests and violence and things going on in the world, he asked his mother, you know, how, how, how I can deal with this. And he said, well, sweetie, what you need to do is you need to look for the helpers. You need to look at people that are going to come to these people's aid and help. And I agree with you. The mm-hmm. people that I work with that have eating disorders, they have an incredible heart. They are such go-getters. And we need them so badly because they're the ones that are going to fix things. They're the ones that are going to be, mm-hmm. you know, helping so much. That's you know? right. Yeah. Ugh. Um. Uh, okay, so um, I, I, I want to just end here with uh, saying that this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Buchanan, for this. I think that this is going to be very, very, very useful. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of last things, and that is I think you've told me that you have some uh, tests or um, self-tests that you provide on your website. Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about those? Um, yes, there's a self-test screening test for eating disorder, and it's just four questions. And if, um, if somebody answers yes to all four, then the research shows that they they do have an eating disorder 95% of the time. Um, if they answer yes to three, then they probably should still talk to somebody or even two. Um, if they answer yes to one, they're probably just like all of us, a victim of our society, but maybe not an eating disorder. Um, and then there's one on orthorexia. There's a self-test for if you are in danger of developing or have developed orthorexia. And um, I also have an interesting um, sort of self-awareness test, which is for people to um, check their beliefs about weight. So it, it asks questions like, do you believe um, such and such about weight? And there's about 10, 15 questions there. Um, 
I do not yet have those on my website, but thank oh. you for motivating me. I will <laughs> there by tomorrow. <laughs> I put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, rest assured that this this won't air until a couple of weeks, so you have a couple of weeks. <laughs> but um, I'll work with you to get the, the the links, and then of course I'll have them in my show notes, and I'll also put them on my website uh, separately. Okay. And then the one other thing I want to mention is I have a um, webinar. It's a one hour webinar on orthorexia. No. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It is on um, health at every size and body positivity. And it has um, sort of, uh, it summarizes a lot of research about why diets don't work. And it also has um, suggestions about, you know, what to do instead. If a diet doesn't work, then what do you do? And um, that that is on my website at this point. Ah, okay, good. All right, perfect. Um... Is that webinar live or is it uh, click recorded? On the resources tab. Say again. Uh, you can just click on the resources tab, and it's oh. there on the website. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Perfect. And again, I'll have links to that on my show notes as well. Let's let's go ahead and, and transition out, and let's talk about a couple of other things here. Um, just let me ask some fun questions here. So. Uh, all right. So you're s- stranded in a desert island and you've got one meal to choose. <laughs> um, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my favorite meal would be, it'd be spaghetti. Spaghetti. Oh, wow. Nobody used to say that. Why spaghetti? I don't know. I love it. And I would have to have dark chocolate. Oh, okay. So spaghetti with dark chocolate is a little topping or dessert. I mean, topping. (laughs) I think that's probably a comfort food from my childhood, spaghetti. Oh, fascinating. That's good. That's good. Okay. Um, Another fun question. What's uh, either the latest book that you are reading or a book that's really influenced you? Um, I'm reading Untamed right now. Untamed. Who's that from? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Um. I'm blanking on the author's oh, name. I'm putting you on spot. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. Untamed. What, why <laughs> I could is grab it? my phone and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> what, what do you like about it? This is a woman who has um, been, um, she's, she's authored a few books, two of them very autobiographical, and she has been very open with her um, development in her life from, um, from, uh, being in a marriage that she was trying very hard to um, save and, and thought she had and the journey she went through, I did not read that book, but I just know of it. And then Untamed, where she's saying that we just have to learn to be who we really are and that oh, she didn't realize that she had so many layers of expectation around her identity um, that she's had to just continue peeling off. And it's the story of how she did that. Wow, that sounds good. I'm going to have to pick it up myself too. That sounds really interesting, especially the piece about identity and all those layers. Oh gosh, yeah, that sounds really, really good. Okay, so uh, any any last takeaways that you want to leave uh, for the audience? Um, I would just, I would just say, if you haven't struggled with the eating disorder, it's not what you think it is, and you know someone who has one, even if you don't know it. And so I just urge people to learn everything they can um, to combat the myths that still are so pervasive. Wow, that's a good one. 
That's so true. I mean, you don't even see it sometimes. Uh, eating disorders can s- slip under the radar in a lot of cases. You, you don't you don't always see people who are emaciated that have right. an eating disorder. You can't but, tell if somebody has an eating disorder by the size they are. No, no. It runs the gamut. Um, great. Okay. Um, Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much once again. I greatly appreciate you um, taking the time to give us some great information on eating disorders. Um, I know there's a lot more that we can talk about. Um, so um, I will um, always look to you to get a little bit more information and may hopefully have you on the show again in another time. Okay. Anytime. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Hey, all right. Wow. Great interview with Dr. Linda Paul Buchanan. Two-part series, episode 39 and episode 40 here, where we talk about a lot of things related to eating disorders. I hope you understand that it is a very complex subject. And one of the things that I talked about in episode 39 was my battle with orthorexia and how it does stigmatize the way we think about food. But I do want to let you know that there is a way out of this, and that is part of the announcement that I have for you today. This podcast originally was designed for men, but I am changing gears slightly here. I want to make sure that I am reaching an audience that doesn't get reached much, and that is our people who have the, this diet culture and this heaviness, uh, stigma of weight and, and eating issues. And I really want to get to that. And I hope you guys don't mind, but this is the direction that I'm going. And it really is based on that chopping the diet mentality, fueling your body from the inside out. And hopefully we get to nourish that soul. So going forward, that's the direction that I'm going to be going. I'm going to bring in some great guests like Evelyn Triboli, Elise Resch, Dr. Buchanan, and many more that are going to head down that route. But of course, we'll talk about food. I'll make sure to have those Friday food hacks. And I'll bring my friend on, Patrick Bryant, to talk about some men's issues as well. And you know what, dudes, I'm not going to forget about you guys. You know, I am a guy. And so I do have topics that are going to be important. But I just want to let you all know that I'm doing a little bit of a change here, not much, just to give you some of that information to let you know that we're going a little bit broader here and talk a little bit more about this anti-diet uh, culture that I'm such a big believer in. So um, one last big ask of you, if you get a, a moment to leave me a review, please go ahead and do so. If you like this episode or any other, feel free to share it with someone the greater the likelihood I get a review, the more this uh, podcast is available to more people. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, they'll open it up more because it's answering people's questions. But if I'm not answering your questions, I'd love to hear from you. So yeah, leave me a review or go to my website and leave me a comment. You can go to my TD Wellness website, tdwellness.com forward slash contact dash us and i'll make sure to fix that link and then uh, you can leave a comment there so all right folks i just want to say hey man i really appreciate you for listening in i appreciate you taking the time i know this was a little bit longer of a segment but thank you thank you so much from the bottom of my heart so remember chop that diet mentality fuel your body and nourish your soul until next time see you soon 